Welcome to Grim Gossip. Before we start the show, I want to give a proper warning. The episode you are about to hear may include grim details about assault, rape, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Today's case is about Marcus Wesson, whose terrible crime flew under the radar due to the Lacey Peterson case, which took the nation's headlines by storm. Marcus was born on August 22, 1946. He was the oldest of four kids, and they were raised in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a Christian denomination. His mother, Carrie, was supposedly a religious radical, and his dad, Benjamin, was an abusive alcoholic, both sexually and physically. It has been said that the kids would hide from Benjamin until he sobered up enough in order to get away from his unwanted affection. A childhood friend of Marcus's would later come forward to testify that Benjamin offered him $50 in exchange for oral sex, which his friend denied. But one day, Benjamin decided to abandon the family by running away with his male cousin, who he is suspected to have been involved in an incestuous relationship with. Benjamin came back ten years later, and it was as if he had never left. The family never discussed this either. Benjamin was just back in their lives. Growing up, Marcus was said to have been very charismatic and eccentric when he wanted to be. He had a way of speaking that made him sound much more intelligent than he was, which created a certain aura around him. People were drawn to him, and he liked that. He even pretended to be a preacher, and he loved leading people. But in high school, he was said to have been quiet and often just blending into the crowd, except for his size. He was made fun of by the other students because he always had a crew cut and wore slacks with a button-up and a tie to school. While he never participated in typical extracurricular activities that teenagers normally do, like alcohol and maybe drugs, he also wasn't a good student. He didn't even earn enough credits to graduate with his class, so he would have been held back while all his peers moved on with life. Instead of waiting, Marcus dropped out of high school in 1966 when he was 17 and decided to join the army. There he became a medic and was stationed in Europe. In 1968, he was discharged and sent back to the U.S. Shortly after getting back to the U.S., he met a woman named Rosemary Solario, who was 13 years his senior, married but separated, and had eight kids. But none of that seemed to bother Marcus. In fact, he quickly moved into her house and was happy to play the father role to her kids, to lead them in the right direction. They eventually had one son together who they named Adair in 1971. Not long into their relationship, though, Marcus started eyeing her daughter, Elizabeth, who was just eight years old when they met. It didn't take much time for him to begin molesting her. He told her that God had chosen her to be his wife, and with her mother's permission, performed an unofficial wedding ceremony for the two of them. When she was 15 years old, he asked Rosemary for her permission to legally marry Elizabeth, and she agreed to that as well. At the time, Marcus was 27 years old. Elizabeth became his wife in 1974, and four months after their wedding, she gave birth to their first child, Dorian. At this point, 
Marcus took it upon himself to discipline all ten kids in the house. If they cried, he yelled at them. He would even take a bamboo stick to beat them, if their mothers couldn't soothe them into quietness. Rosemary and Elizabeth had no say in how to raise or teach the kids. He even separated the families. Elizabeth was living on the top floor of the house with Marcus and their new baby, while Rosemary was living on the ground floor with their child and her eight kids from her previous marriage. Marcus eventually told Rosemary that he and Elizabeth were taking Dorian and moving out, and they needed her van. Rosemary protested at first, but then he told her that she had a choice. Let him, Elizabeth, and the baby leave with her van, or let them leave with the child they shared, Adair. Rosemary didn't give it a second thought. She gave him the keys, and the two left Rosemary and Adair, along with her other children, behind. But when they left, they really had nowhere to go. Marcus and Elizabeth and Dorian became drifters, moving from place to place. At this point, the family was living on a 26-foot boat with holes in it. Every morning, they would need to get the buckets and scoop the water off the boat. Marcus got a job at a bank, which he seemed suited for, but it didn't work out, and he was jobless. The whole family would soon become heavily dependent on government aid, which Elizabeth received. In order for him to keep up appearances, he lied to his acquaintances and said he was still working in banking and had his hand in real estate as well as having dealt drugs for a while. By the time Elizabeth was 31 years old, she and Marcus had given birth to 10 more children. Donovan, Marcus Jr., Serafino, Kiani, Sabrina, Alme, Adrian, Elizabeth, Gypsy, and Stefan. Unfortunately, Donovan died shortly after birth due to spinal meningitis, and Stefan died at birth, leaving them with nine children total. Even though Marcus wanted more children, Elizabeth told him she couldn't have any more. She feared for her safety when she told him, but said, quote, It'll kill me to go through giving birth again, unquote. To her surprise, Marcus didn't get mad at all. He even agreed to let her go get her tubes tied to ensure she didn't have to worry about it ever again. In 1986, their household would grow. Elizabeth's older sister, Rosemary, left her seven children with Elizabeth and Marcus. It's said that she was unable to care for her kids due to her drug addiction. This brought Marcus's household number up to 18 total. They were excited because they had already been living in an abusive life, but it wasn't long until they realized that their abuse would only continue here. Eventually, they moved into a tent on someone else's land. According to Marcus, there was an agreement between him and the landowner that there was a lease-to-purchase contract between the two of them. However, when the landowner died, his children inherited the land and kicked Marcus and his family out which left them homeless, but not for long. Marcus was eventually able to move his family into a small, abandoned office. He took this opportunity to do what he loved. He preached to his children and to his nieces and nephews. None of the children attended school. Instead, they learned from Marcus and his ramblings. Instead of teaching them from scholastic books, 
He only taught them religion, and not just any religion. He taught them from his Bible, which he wrote himself and changed quite frequently. In his Bible, Jesus was a vampire. He told his kids that both held the link to eternal life and that drinking blood was the key to immortality. He also preached that living a polygamous lifestyle was what God wanted for him and that he was to have as many children as possible in order to preserve God's children because God's people were becoming extinct. He kept warning them that the world was full of sin and danger, even teaching them at a young age that they should enter into a suicide pact. If anyone should come in and try to separate the family, they should kill themselves because they are just trying to harm God's children. Marcus had absolute power over everyone in his household. He alone was the only one disciplining the children. He forbade Elizabeth to have any part in disciplining or teaching the kids. She was just there now. His punishment started with spankings, telling them, quote, Well, you know I love you still, and the only reason I'm doing this is to make you a better person, unquote. But it didn't take long for spankings to turn into beatings. Eventually, he began hitting the kids with bamboo sticks and wire cables until they bled. One of the kids even received a beating with a cable for almost 20 minutes straight, and one child was beat for 23 days straight. And just as before, he began grooming the girls when they turned seven or eight. He ended up recreating the same unofficial ceremonies with them, as well as beginning incestuous relationships. He would tell them, quote, this is how a father shows his daughter love, unquote. He would go on to have children with some of his daughters who he made into child brides. As they got older, they all began hitting puberty. And since they were forbidden to attend any other school but his, they didn't know any better and neither did Elizabeth, which means they might begin acting on their hormones. At this point, he decided to separate the boys from the girls from here on out unless they were given permission to see each other under his eyes. They often watched the news together as a family, which is when they saw the news about David Koresh, an infamous cult leader who was taken down in 1993, but that's a case for another episode. Marcus took this moment to scare his family, telling them, quote, This is how the world is attacking God's people. This man is just like me. He is making children for the Lord." Unquote. The notion of the suicide pact became more prominent and now the family was being made to be prepared to die if anyone came to break them up. And their family was about to grow. Kiani, Elizabeth's daughter, became pregnant. Elizabeth asked her who the father was and Kiani didn't want to tell her but she said she recognized a scared look on Kiani's face. It was the same face Elizabeth wore when she had to tell her own mother the same thing. It all became clear now why Marcus didn't protest to the operation to have her tubes tied. He had already decided to move forward with one of his daughters. But of course, Elizabeth couldn't protest for fear of being beaten. But Kiani wasn't the only one. Marcus would go on to have children with his other daughter, Sabrina, 
and his nieces, Elizabeth's sister's daughters, Sophina, Ruby, and Rosa. As they got older, the boys were to move out as soon as possible, and the girls were to go to work and bring all of their income back to Marcus. Some of the other girls were able to break free before birthing any children for Marcus. Ruby, however, found love at work, which is when she decided it was time to leave the family. Sophina would soon leave too. Both girls were given similar options as Rosemary Solario. They may leave, but they have to leave the children behind. They agreed so long as the children came to no harm, and he assured them that they wouldn't. By 2004, the household number fell to just 11. After leaving, Sophina and Ruby came to realize that the life they had lived was not like everyone else's, and what was happening in that household was incredibly wrong. After this realization, they devised a plan to get their kids back. Unfortunately, the family was facing eviction. Marcus began planning their out and was planning to move the family to Washington to be closer to his parents. Sophina and Ruby got wind of this news and knew they had to act fast. On March 12, 2004, they decided it was now or never. Marcus's first wife, Elizabeth, had stepped out of the house to do something when they showed up and were met by Marcus at the door. They demanded to have their children back, and Marcus refused. They were then met by Sabrina at the door, who called them Judases and whores, and told them they should be on their knees bowing to their master. Meanwhile, Marcus just stood there calmly, not saying anything. They were refused entry into the house since they were no longer a part of the family, and it was clear they were getting nowhere. Sophina and Ruby decided to leave the property, only to come back with the police. At this point, Elizabeth was just returning when the girls were standing on the porch yelling about their children through the door. Elizabeth was not allowed to get closer to the house, as now this is becoming a situation. It was understood that Marcus had a twenty-two caliber in the house, and the suicide pact was made known immediately. SWAT was called and surrounded the home. When the police went to the door, Marcus opened it and spoke with them. They told him they needed to search the home for the children, and he told them they would not be allowed in without a warrant. He was then told to release the children, which he finally agreed to, but said he needed to say bye to them first and close the door. Soon, gunshots were heard, and then the door opened. Marcus Wesson, a man of over six feet tall and close to 300 pounds, came out with his hands up and covered in blood. Sophina, Ruby, and Elizabeth already knew what had happened. They cried out in pain for their children. Marcus was arrested immediately, and the police entered the home, where they would find coffins made into makeshift beds, and in the back room, a pile of bodies. It seems the family had taken the suicide pact seriously, except for Marcus. Each victim was shot in the head and carefully laid one on top of the other. The victims include Sabrina, 27, Elizabeth, 17, 
Illabel, eight, Aviv and Jonathan, seven, Ethan, four, and Marche, Jeva, and Sedona, who were only one years old. Marcus was held on a nine million dollar bail and charged with nine counts of murder. But his charges would soon grow when the DNA from the victims came to light. Seven of the younger victims were products of incest from two of his daughters, adding 14 additional charges of sexual abuse. Even after all of this, his wife Elizabeth, Kiani, and Rosa continued to defend this man. Marcus was taken to trial, and some of his surviving family testified against him in open court, except for Elizabeth. His defense was that Sabrina was the perpetrator. She had killed the entire family and turned the gun on herself, leaving Marcus alone. After 48 hours of deliberating, the jury came back finding Marcus guilty on all charges, which was nine counts of murder and 14 counts of raping and molesting his daughters and nieces. They even recommended the death penalty for Marcus. At the time of the final verdict, Marcus was no longer the large, scary man he once was. He looked as though he had lost half his weight and looked almost frail. After a month, Fresno County Superior Court R.L. Punham accepted the jury's recommendation for the death penalty. In the end, Marcus was sentenced to 102 years in prison and is on death row in Fresno, California. For the surviving Wesson family, getting out on their own wasn't an easy road. None of them had proper schooling, which made it difficult to make a decent living or anywhere to go. Most went through intense therapy, and even after that, it still took them years to understand that they had been brainwashed and that everything they had known, the only things they were ever taught over the course of their entire lives, was not right. A local reporter, Alicia Sofios, decided to help as much as she could. She opened up her home and invited Elizabeth, Gypsy, and Kiani to live with her to help them get on their feet. Even though this might be career suicide, she did it anyway. Elizabeth and Kiani were able to move out, and Gypsy remained her roommate for quite a while. Eventually, everyone was out on their own and starting their own families. Gypsy even named her daughter after Alicia. In 2010, Serafino intended to become a police officer in order to honor his murdered family. As of today, the surviving Wesson family members are living independently and free from Marcus's reign of terror. And that is where the case ends. If you guys enjoyed today's episode, there's many more to come. Hit the subscribe button so that you get notifications when new episodes drop. If you have any suggestions, send them my way at grimgossippod at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram at grimgossippod. All websites used for the research is in the show notes if you guys want to take a deeper dive into this case. Thank you for listening. Until next time.